professor of systematic and historical theology for the seminary. Um, you know him well. Lots of things that he has done in the, the church, both the PCA, but also within larger evangelicalism. Um, but I first got to know Lig way back in 1999. So I, we've known each other now for almost 25 years. Uh, and I met him um, um, while I was still Baptist through the agency of a Baptist pastor, our mutual friend, Mark Dever. Uh, I was there over Memorial Day weekend uh, hanging out with Mark, and he wasn't preaching that Sunday. This Presbyterian guy was preaching. It was Ligon. Uh, and uh, as Mark does, uh, he debriefs the services at the end of the day. Uh, and as we sat around talking, and I was wrestling with infant baptism already because we had just had Liz. Um, our daughter Liz was just born. Um, I said, hmm. Um, this Presbyterian guy makes a whole lot more sense than my Baptist friend here. <laughs> and so in 2001, after Drew was born and I switched sides, the person that I reached out to uh, in order to help me navigate, okay, I was Baptist working at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and now I'm becoming Presbyterian. What do I do? The person who pastored me through that was Ligon. Uh, and so um, since that point for, like I said, 22 years, He's been my friend. There's no one I trust more um, to minister God's word to my family, to me, and to us than Ligon. So thank you. Ligon, please do come. Uh, thank you, Sean, and thank you for the privilege of opening God's word tonight. Yeah, I, I kept up with Sean. Were you already at Westminster Seminary when you were there? Yeah, because... Because, and you were working on, were you working on Machen or Dabney at that point? Were you already working on Dabney? And so we started talking theology immediately. And then I followed Sean to Southern Seminary where he was a librarian archivist. And, um, and then through your time at Covenant Seminary and Hattiesburg and here. And we just kept up all uh, through those years. And I learned so much from Sean. Mark has this remarkable ability of bringing sharp people together. And, I mean, he does. You go up there and you meet the guys that he has around him. He has really outstanding people. And so it, it wasn't surprising to meet somebody of Sean's caliber there, but it was very nice to meet someone who became a Presbyterian because, <laughs> because Mark doesn't let many of them get away. You know, they, he keeps his Baptist cubs close to him. And uh, so it's nice to see one slip away from... Uh, his vice grip and uh, come over to the to the forces of good, uh, and uh, so it's it's a joy to be with you. Thanks again, Sean. And what a wonderful topic! Uh, you're you're talking about knowing the God of Scripture. Um, my son-in-law and daughter and son last year did a Bible study together on Sunday nights through J.I. Packer's Knowing God. So I love the theme that you're doing on Wednesday night. And it was, I mean, I, I think I first read or tried to read all the way through and I maybe got halfway through knowing God when I was a teenager. And uh, I think I've gotten through it at least five times now uh, since that time. But I wanted to do that partly as a way to get to know my son-in-law. He wasn't my son-in-law yet. He was, he was my daughter's fiance, and I wanted us to have time together. So we did it Zoom on Sunday night after church. With they, uh, my son was in Starkville at Mississippi State. They're in Greenville, South Carolina as school teachers at Brian Habig's church. Some of you will know Brian, uh, who was the RUF guy at Mississippi State and then at Vanderbilt. Um, 
and uh, now is the pastor of Downtown Prez in Greenville, South Carolina, and has been a wonderful pastor to them. And uh, it, it was, I mean, wonderful, one thing, just to go back through Packer together and just talk through those glorious truths about who God is, because that's like more than half of the Christian life is just knowing who your God is, right? I mean, you know, it's not, it's not having all the answers about what in the world you're going through right now, because most of the time we don't have an answer for that. But we do have an answer for who our God is. And he says so much about himself in the word. The, the Bible is a book about God and about communion with God. Uh, Packer himself has this wonderful thing that the Bible is about God and godliness. Um, and you, you may have heard him say before that the secret to an enriching Bible study is not asking the question, what does this passage say to me? Now, of course, there's a good way you can ask that question, and there's a bad way you can ask that question. But he says the secret to enriching Bible study is asking, what does this passage teach me about my God? And, um, and so, I, I, hence, I love your theme. And then, uh, Sean has sort of thrown Br'er Rabbit into the briar patch by letting me talk about the God of the Covenant, because I love covenant theology. Uh, I've I've taught covenant theology for 31 years now at RTS, and so to be able to talk to you about our covenant God is a wonderful thing because God shows us his love and his generosity through covenants. One of the things you may not know is that in no other religion does a God covenant with his people except the religion of the Bible. It's one of the unique things about Christianity. God covenants with his people. It's, it's the way that he initiates and sustains our communion with him. And so I want to go to four passages tonight and talk about what we learn about our God and what we learn about communion with him through the covenants. So let's pray, and let me just tell you the passages. We're going to look at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Exodus 19, and Luke 22. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Exodus 19, and Luke 22. We could look at the whole Bible, uh, but we don't have time for that tonight. So we're going to look at four passages. You know, the word covenant is used 330 plus times in the Bible. And it's not a word like and or the. Usually when it's in a passage, it's pretty important. So, but we don't have time to do 330 passages tonight. So we're going to do four and look at how God communes with us through his gracious covenant. Okay, Let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can study the Bible, which is a book in which you have revealed yourself to us. We couldn't have known you the way we ought to unless you had revealed yourself the way you have. And you have so kindly not only revealed yourself in your creation, the heavens are telling the glory of God, uh, but you've also revealed yourself 
in your word. You've described what you're like. You've shown us your heart. And we pray that we would get some uh, understanding and experience and feeling of your heart as we study your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Number one, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, let me just give you my outline ahead of time. In Genesis 12, I want you to see God's promise. In Genesis 15, I want you to see God's commitment. In Exodus 19, I want you to see God's covenant. And in Luke 22, I want you to see God's sacrifice. But all of those things are related to the God of the covenant and covenant theology. So we'll, the promise, commitment, covenant, and sacrifice. So let's start in Genesis 12 with the promise. The Lord said to Abram, Genesis 12, 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There, in that passage, God makes a promise to Abraham. And it is a sevenfold promise that he makes uh, to Abram. So it's a, it's a, you know, a multifaceted promise. And that promise uh, unveils like no passage before it uh, and no passage after it the gracious covenant that God has established in order to bring his people back to himself, to redeem his people. Remember the whole story of Noah and the flood tells you how bad things are in this fallen world and how the fallen world deserves God's judgment, while the story of Abraham shows God's purposes of grace for his people, and it begins with a promise. Now, that doesn't surprise us because we're good Presbyterians and we've read our Bibles and we know that the story of Abraham is integral to God's purposes in his history of redemption, but it really is surprising. And I want you to just think for a minute about how surprising this is. First of all, where was Abram from? You learn it in the end of chapter 11. He was from a place, a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which was really one of the key cultural centers of that part of the world. It was a very, very important part of that world culturally. And it was a center of moon worship. The, 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 the main god that they worshipped in Ur was the god of the moon. And you, you know that all over the ancient Near East, a lot of people worshipped the sun, a lot of people worshipped the moon, a lot of people worshipped other gods. And so Abram's family were moon-worshipping pagans. And God reaches out to him. Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, God reaches out to him while he's living in Mesopotamia. While he's living in a moon-worshipping culture, 
in a moon-worshipping pagan family, God reaches out to him and speaks to him these words of promise. In other words, God makes a commitment of promise to Abraham before Abraham is his disciple. God's promises create this discipleship relationship uh, with Abram. Abram comes from a family of idolaters, and God's promise changes Abram's life. Uh, Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators, says, in the end, the difference between Abram and his father, his father was named Terah, and his father actually traveled with him half of the way to Canaan. But he says the difference between Abram and Terah is that God made a promise to Abram and he didn't make a promise to Terah. God's word is what created in Abram faith and discipleship. God spoke and he created a people out of Abram. In fact, here's my statement. God's promises create and uphold a people for himself. God's promises create and uphold a people for himself. Just like in Genesis 1, God speaks and the world comes into being. In Genesis 12, God speaks a word of promise and it creates his people. So have you ever thought about it? Anybody know where, if we were to draw a map of the Middle East today, where would Mesopotamia be and what country? Iraq. So, the, your spiritual father, remember we're all children of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So, let that, you know the song, okay? So, the, our spiritual father, Abraham, was a moon-worshipping Iraqi. And God's promise created faith and made him God's people. And so now he's the father of both Jews and Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's God's word speaking that creates that. Now, what you need to understand is this is a covenant promise. If you, if you look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, there are obligations that Abram is asked to follow. And you see that in verse 1. And then there are promises that God makes. And you see those in verse, verses 2 and 3. That's the form of a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding, living agreement with blessings and obligations. A covenant is a binding, living agreement with blessings and obligations. And in Genesis 12... 1 to 3, we see, even though the word covenant isn't used there, that's exactly what we see. We see God give Abram obligations. What are his obligations? Leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. Now, from that instruction in Genesis 12.1, how can I prove to you that Abram was not saved by works? Because he was one out of three on the commands of Genesis 12.1, right? He didn't leave his father's house. He didn't leave his family. He took Lot with him. He did leave 
his country. Woo! One out of three. Way to go, Abram. Okay, so from Genesis 12, 1 on, you know that salvation is by grace, not by works. Because the father of faith was one out of three. Hey, one out of three is 333. That's a pretty good batting adage, right? But not if it's by works, right? If it's salvation by works, you're done. Okay, so even in the obligations that God gives Abram, he doesn't follow them. It, in, in fact, it takes him years to untangle himself from his father's house and from his family. It, and that's kind of just how it is with us, right? You know, we, we're not sanctified overnight, are we? We may wish we were sanctified overnight, but we're not. So that promise, that God's word of promise, takes this idolater out of an idolatrous land and family and makes him the father of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's all about God's covenant promise. And it, what that lets you know is God's initiative, God's initiative is why there are any believers at all. If, if it weren't for God's initiative, there would be no believers. It's God's gracious initiative towards us that leads to God having a people. He has to come after us. It is not going to be surprising that Jesus will talk about a shepherd who leaves these 99 sheep and goes after one who's wandering and lost. Because in the very beginning, God has to go after Abram and bring him to himself. That's how it always is. God's initiative is what creates a people for himself. So God's promises create and then uphold a people for himself. You see that in Genesis 12. Then turn over to Genesis 15. Uh, God reiterates his promises to Abram to give him the land and to give him a, an heir and hence a great nation in Genesis 15. And he says, do not fear, Abram, Genesis 15, 1. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram asks, O Lord, what are you going to give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So he says, Lord, I know that you've, been, you've blessed me. I'm a very wealthy man. I know you've blessed me. But when I die, I'm not going to have anybody to give that to because I, Sarah and I don't have children. So what does it matter if I'm rich if I don't have anybody to give that to? Now, of course, Abram is also concerned because God has, you've already heard it, God has promised that he's going to make him a great nation. And you can't be a great nation until you've had at least one child. Okay? So his, his doubts here flow from faith. In other words, God made him a promise that hasn't come true yet. In Genesis 15 Abram has been walking with God for 25 years, and he still doesn't have a child. Then God reiterates his promise to give him the land. Look at verse 7. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And, and Abram asks another question. Oh, Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? And God's answer to that is in verses 10 to 12. He says, go Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Divide them up, sit there and wait. And everybody 
in the ancient Near Eastern world would have known, ah, this is going to be a covenant-making ceremony. And what they would have assumed was that God was going to have Abram walk between the pieces of the slaughtered animals as a sign of the relationship that they were going to be confirming. But of course, as you know, what happens is Abraham sleeps through the whole thing. Abraham falls asleep and a smoking oven and a flaming torch show up and go between the pieces. Now, what in the world is going on there? Well, in the book of Genesis, three times at least God shows, in, the, in, the, in, in Genesis and Exodus, three times at least God shows up as fire. Here, the burning bush and the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. All three are a visible depiction of God's nearness to presence with and protection of his people. But in this case, instead of Abram walking between the pieces, the smoking oven and the flaming torch go between the pieces. In other words, this is God saying, here's Abram, here's how you know that you're going to have an heir. Here's how you know that I'm going to give you the land. I swear by my own life that I will keep my promises to you. In other words... God's commitments form and sustain the faith of his people. It's this passage, it's this passage, Genesis 15, 6, is the passage that Paul quotes to prove justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You ever, you ever thought about that? In, in Romans 4, Paul essentially says to everybody who's listening, not just the Romans, but to any lurking Judaizers out there, he says, hey, hear me loud and clear. I am not the one who invented the doctrine of justification by faith. Moses is the guy who invented the doctrine of justification by faith. Let me cite to you Genesis 15, 6, which was written by Moses. And what does it say? And he believed and the Lord credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is the foundation of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. And it's in the context of the God of the covenant confirming his promises to Abraham by saying, I swear by my own life that I will keep my promises to you. So God's promises create a people for himself, and God's commitments form faith in his people. And Abram believed when God confirmed his promises to him, and, and Moses tells us, he, that is God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay, third passage, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, in Exodus chapter 19, God explains what he was up to in the Exodus. Okay, now true confession. I think by the time I got to seminary, I had read the book of Exodus at least 20 times. You know, so I'm 22 years oldish, and I've read the book of Exodus 20 times. Okay, now true confessions. 
I, here's how I read the story of the Exodus. Moses was tricking Pharaoh when he said, let God's people go that they may go three days into the wilderness and worship him. The way I read that was Moses was saying to Pharaoh, just let us go three days into the wilderness. And we'll worship God. You know, implication, just three days and then we'll come back, right? Okay, I had totally misread the book of Exodus. The whole point of the book of Exodus is that God's people would be freed from their slavery in order to worship him in freedom. So that the whole point of the Exodus is to get to Sinai so that they can become free and willing worshipers of the living God. That's the whole point. They are saved to worship. Worship wasn't a trick. It was the whole point. So it was a good thing that I went to seminary, or I would have been misleading all sorts of congregations all over the place. That's another good argument for seminary, isn't it? Straightens you out on some things. So here's the passage where Moses explains that. Look at Exodus 19, and look especially at verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And what I want you to see here is God's covenant shapes and guides the identity and the life of his people. God's covenant shapes and guides the identity and life of his people. Notice how he starts. Look at verse 4. He makes it clear he is the one who saved them. They did not save themselves. Moses did not save them. He saved them. I, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. So he says three things. I'm the one who did those things to the Egyptians. Not Moses, not the staff. I'm the one who did that. I'm, I, I told you, what, what, did, what did God promise to Abraham? Those who curse you, I will curse. And so God says, I'm the one who protected you. I'm the one that did that. And then I bore you on eagle's wings. I, I didn't say to you, okay, I brought, I brought curses on uh, the Egyptians. Now you guys figure it out. Y'all get out on your own. I bore you on eagle's wings. And then I brought you to myself. So you're here at Mount Sinai and you're here because I dealt with the Egyptians. I brought you out and I brought you to me. So there's no way out of that can you get the idea that God is saying, you're on your own. Save yourselves. 
He's the one that's done the saving. He's the one who's done the delivering. He's the one who's brought them to himself to worship. And then he says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now that could sound like God was saying, okay, I saved you. Now, if you will do these things, then I will subsequently bless you. But that's not what God is saying. What God is saying is actually, all three of these things are blessings. Notice what he says. You will be my own possession. What does that mean? That is a, you will be a king's treasured possession. Any of you read uh, The Hobbit? What was the treasured possession of the dwarves that they were trying to find in the story of the Hobbit? The Arkenstone, the treasured possession of the king. It was the thing that they cared about most. And in the end, one of them gave his life because of it, because that was his treasured possession. Well, he's saying, you're my treasured possession. That's not something that you accomplish. That's a blessing to you, that you've, you've been, God picks you. Have you ever wondered what does God get out of salvation? I mean, I, I get, not only do I not get what I deserve, I get heaven by grace. Okay? So what does God get out of it? The answer is you. He picked you. That's what he wants. What, what does he want out of this? You. Uh, J.I. Packer uh, provocatively puts it this way. What is God up to? In the work of redemption, he's making you his friend again. He's making you his friend again. He created us, and then we rebelled against him. We became his enemies, and in redemption, he's making us his friends again. So what does he get out of salvation? You. You are a treasured possession. And then he says, you will be a kingdom of priests. Now, what's, what's up with that? What do priests do? Priests intercede for others. So if they're going to be a kingdom of priests, what does that mean? Who are they going to be interceding for? For the nations. Because remember, all the way back in Genesis 12, 3, in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what will the children of Israel be doing? Lord, bring the nations to yourself. Make, what, what do the Psalms say? They're going to stream to Mount Zion. What, what does the prophet say? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Israel is supposed to be a praying congregation, praying and interceding for the world, that the world might come to know the one true and living God and be saved from their sins, and be brought into communion with him. And so, they're, again, that's a privilege. You get to be the intercessors for the nations. And then, a holy nation. That is, I have set you apart. I've chosen you for myself. I've set you apart from the nations. And by the way, Peter uses this language and applies it to us. 
as Christians. We're his treasured possession. We're a kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what, what's Moses saying here? Is he saying if we do certain things, then we earn these blessings? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is the purpose of God's redemption. So when you do these things, you will be what he intended you to be when he saved you. If I could put it this way, if a believer asks, hey, do I have to obey God's commandments? It's like asking if we can be ourselves some other way than being ourselves. If a believer says, do I have to obey God's commands? It's like asking, hey, is there another way to be myself other than being myself? Because God created us to be like him, to reflect his character. Remember Genesis 1? We are created in the image and likeness of God. And the only way to image his character is to emulate his righteousness and holiness, Paul says in Ephesians 4. We are created in his image and likeness in knowledge and holiness, or righteousness and holiness. And so what, what we're being told here is God's covenant changes our identity. We're now his treasured possession. We're now a kingdom of priests. We're now a holy nation. And we are to become what we are. And really, the, the whole of Christian sanctification is be who you are. God has made you this. Now be that. Act that way. Live that out. God's made you his own possession. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Live that way. Live in light of what God has done. God's covenant shape and guide the identity and life of his people. And, and thus, the rule for everyone under the covenant of grace is not do this and live. It's live and do this. In other words, our obedience in the Christian life is not what gets us God's love. Our obedience in the Christian life is because we already know that we have received God's love. Um, I had a wonderful father. My dad died almost 30 years ago, 1992. He's a ruling elder in the PCA, just a, a wonderful, godly uh, father. And, and, and it amazes me how loving and tender he was. He was a he was a Marine in the Second World War. He fought in the South Pacific. He fought in the Battle of Peleliu. And if there are any Marines in the room, most Marines straighten up when they hear the word Peleliu because the Marines took 85% casualties at Peleliu. It was the blood, bloodier than Iwo Jima, bloodier than Okinawa. It was a horrible, horrible battle. My dad was there. And he was the son of an alcoholic um, who was really kind of mean. I mean, my dad remembers when he was 
nine or ten years old, his daddy took him down, downtown in Union, South Carolina to buy him a new pair of shoes. And daddy, daddy's foot had grown to a size eight, which just scandalized my grandfather that he had such a large foot. And he mocked him all the way to the shoe store about uh, how large his, his feet were. So he, he had a hard relationship with him, but he was so tender to, uh, to my mother. I mean, I could tell he adored my mother. He, he worshipped the ground she walked on. He was so tender with his three sons. I had a wonderful father. And so consequently, obedience to my dad was never a drudgery. In fact, the worst thing that I could think of was disappointing my dad because, not because I wasn't accepted by my dad, but because I was. I knew my dad loved me, and the last thing in the world I wanted to do was disappoint him. So, uh, o- obedience was a, was a joy. You know, it was, it was like, you know, when a, when a two-year-old comes, you know, toddling into the kitchen and shows mom the picture. You know, mom, I drew a picture of you. And she looks at it, and the picture looks like Sasquatch. And what does mom say? Oh, that's an awful picture. Go back and redraw it. That doesn't look anything like me. No, what does mom say? Oh, honey, that's the most wonderful picture I've ever seen. Let me put that up on the refrigerator, right? And that's, that's the sort of relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. So his, his covenants actually shape our identity. We're his children. He's our Father. And guide us in how we're to live. What are we supposed to be? We're supposed to resemble the family likeness. We're to look like the family. And and Exodus 19 just beautifully. By the way, even before you get to the Ten Commandments, do you notice how Moses is framing all of this in grace? The commandments are not the means by which Israel is going to save itself. When do they get the commandments? After they've already been saved out of Egypt. They've been out of Egypt for a long time before they get the Ten Commandments pronounced. So the Ten Commandments don't bring them out of Egypt. God's grace brings them out of Egypt. So there's a grace framework. There's a covenant framework for the law. Now finally, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed in Luke chapter 22 says this, if you look at verse 20, after they had eaten the Passover, he took the cup and he said, this cup which is, this is Luke twenty-two twenty, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus in Luke twenty-two twenty says, here's how you need to understand my death tomorrow. And he he tells them, this is my body, this is my blood. Now, all the disciples would have understood that body and blood are the two parts of what? A covenant sacrifice. In the Old Testament, what happened? The, The body of an animal was slaughtered and then incinerated on the altar. The blood of an animal was sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the people to symbolize what? 
that God had forgiven the sins of his people by the sacrifice of that animal. But what does the author of Hebrews tell us in Hebrews 9 and 10? The blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sin. But what can? Well, we have a hymn about that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching the disciples in Luke 22. He's saying, I'm the real sacrifice. He's saying, disciples, tomorrow your whole world is going to come crashing down around your ears. You're going to think everything has gone wrong. You need to understand tomorrow what is going to happen is exactly what God planned from the foundation of the world in order to save you from your sins. I'm going to die as a covenant sacrifice so that you don't have to. So that you don't bear the penalty for your sin. I'm going to fulfill and establish God's covenant of grace by dying in your place. So God's covenant sacrifice effects and establishes all the benefits of the covenant of grace for his people. Your God is a covenant God. And the more you know him as a covenant of God, as as the God of the covenant, the more you will appreciate that he has taken the initiative to bring you into communion with himself. He has created you to be his people. He has created faith in you. He has given you your identity and guided you for your life. And he has provided the sacrifice necessary that you can commune with him forever. And that's one reason why we need to know about our covenant God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are our covenant God. May we know more about the covenants of the Bible so that we can know more about your amazing grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.